Welcome to this week's message from Pastor Jeff Sweetenberger of Story Point Church, located in the heart of Gulf Breeze, Florida. And now, here's Pastor Jeff Sweetenberger for this week's message from Story Point Church. So today we're going to conclude a series on holiness. It's been a number of weeks that we've been talking about this, but this is the last week that I will be sharing. Pastor Jeff will be back next week, and so we're going to conclude this rather lengthy topic discussion on holiness today. So if you remember back a number of weeks ago, if you were with us, really the key verse for this entire series has been Leviticus 19.2. Found in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19.2, where God himself gave us command. He said, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be holy because I, Yehovah your Elohim, am holy. And so we spent a number of weeks talking about what the holiness of God looked like. How we use our imagination to draw closer to that. What it looked like through the eyes of angels and seraphim and some of the saints that have gone before us. And then we spent the last few weeks looking at it from a more practical, how do I live this out type of lifestyle? How do I live a holy lifestyle out at home, at work, here in our culture today, day in and day out? So if you remember a number of weeks ago, in addition to that, I, have, I felt it pressed upon my heart that we needed to do some things life application-wise around here as well, taking care of the facilities that we have. And so we came up with a very lengthy, very, very lengthy to-do list around here a few months back, and we put Tommy in charge of making sure that all those things were taken care of as best as he could. And shout out to Tommy, because right now, as of this morning, 38 things on that list have been taken care of around here. So praise God. Absolutely. Some of you have been up here during your off time to help with that. So thank you very much. Now that's a list that's ongoing. It's a list that will never end. But we take serious, we've taken serious over the last few weeks, this idea that God's called us to be holy. And holiness is more than just the lifestyle that I personally live. It's more than making wise choices. It's more than not saying bad words. It's more than not losing my temper when I'm driving down the road. It's truly the way that I live my life. It's a lifestyle day in and day out. And so this list of 38 things around here is beautiful. We've had new paint that's been put up all over the outside. We've got bushes that have been trimmed. Back parking lot looks totally different. Things have been cleaned up. So thank you for that. It's been a good, good summer. It's been a good beginning to the fall. And so today we're going to continue. We're going to end this discussion of holiness. So if you would take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 13. We spent the last few weeks looking at Hebrews chapter 12. And beginning in Hebrews chapter 13 last week, looking at this holiness perspective, how to live that out in our lives. And today we're going to look at Hebrews chapter 13, starting with verse 9, going through, I believe it's verse 17. So let's go ahead and dig in this morning and look at this together. James, while I'm doing that, would you throw that clock on that back window, on that back for me? Hebrews chapter 13, beginning with verse 9. Do not be carried away. By all kinds of strange teachings. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods 
which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. But the bodies are burned outside the camp. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess His name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. May God bless the reading of his word and give us wisdom and inspiration as we study that this morning. So to begin with, as we look into this, we're talking about life application. How do I take this idea of holiness and live it out in my life? What does that look like? How do I take the scripture that we just read, verses 9 through 17, and live this out? And when you look at some of this, you're like, hmm, I'm not really sure what that means. If I'm reading it and I have no study guide, if I don't have resources to help me, I kind of wonder what some of this is about. Let's back up just a minute and look at the concept, the idea behind Hebrews, the book itself. Some people, the majority of scholars in the world today, do not believe that Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. Some do, but the majority do not. But regardless of who wrote it, here's what we do know about Hebrews. We do know that it was written to the Messianic community of Christ followers. Now, what does that word Messianic community, what do those words mean? I'm talking about Messianic Jews. The title of this book that has been written to by the author is to the Hebrews. Now, the Hebrews is not a word that we use day in, day out around here in our culture today, unless perhaps we're talking about this particular book because it's named Hebrews. But truly, the origin of that was written to the Hebrews. It was written to the Messianic Jews. Now, what is a Messianic Jew? Well, before we look at a Messianic Jew, let's think about the culture and the world in which we live in. You are either a Jew or you are a Gentile. There is no in-between. You are either Jew or you are either Gentile. So a Jew is someone who is born into the Jewish culture, who is a Jew because their parents were Orthodox Jews, or not Orthodox, but were born into Judaism. So it's not something that I just choose to do, although you can become a Jew. We're talking about the blood. You are biologically a Jew. So if you're not a Jew, then you are a Gentile. That's basically the rest of us. If you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. With that in mind, let's look at who this book was written to. It's written to Messianic Jews. What does it mean to be Messianic? What that means is that you are a Christ follower, that you are a Messiah 
follower, messianic. So if you are a messianic Jew, that means that you are born a Jewish person, and at some point in your life, as as we as Gentiles have done, you have said yes to Jesus. And when you said yes to Jesus, you became a messianic Jew. This book is written to a group of messianic, Christ-following Jewish people. So we need to have a little bit, at least a little bit, of knowledge of what Judaism is, the study of the Old Testament, the study, the understanding of the Jewish culture and the Jewish writings in order to understand some of the stuff that the author's talking about right here. Because, quite honestly, this is a little bit confusing. But if you study and have a little bit of a history and knowledge of Judaism, it makes a little bit more sense. Let's jump in. Verse 9, do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. Now, you don't have to be an Orthodox Jew, a Messianic Jew, or a Gentile to question, to have any idea what this is talking about. Strange teachings. My goodness, we live in a world of strange teachings, don't we? We really do. Now, I've talked to our college students and our high school students quite a lot, and these guys have taken classes, especially in the college realm, of world religions. Oh, my goodness. There are a lot of world religions. There are so many religions, it's hard to put them all in one textbook. On and on and on and on. And that's part of what we classify as strange teachings. But it's not just world religions. We're not talking about just the study of Buddha, the study of Muslim, the study of some other entity that's, that, that is believed to be in the world. It's also the study of strange teachings. Look at our culture. A lot of strange teachings going on just in our culture. When you think about psychological type of studies and Philosophy types of classes and what you believe versus what I believe. There are so many strange and crazy ideas. Do a little search on Google and you'll come up with more hits than you can imagine. A lot of strange teachings out there. So the very first warning that we see here in verse 9 is to stay away from strange teachings. So how can I stay away from strange teachings if I don't even know it's a strange teaching to begin with? Well, maybe my friend or my mom or my dad or somebody, my school teacher told me it was a strange teaching. Or the pastor on Sunday morning, my Sunday school teacher, told me it's a strange teaching, so I need to stay away from it. How do I stay away from strange teachings if I don't have somebody with me to help me and tell me that it's a strange teaching? So one of the gifts that God gives us through the Holy Spirit of God is a gift of discernment. Oh, I love the gift of discernment. Now, some people have a higher gift of discernment than others. Some people put into practice their gift of discernment a little bit more often than others. So let's think about discernment for just a moment. Let's use this piano as an example and Pastor Kevin. Pastor Kevin has a gift of playing the piano, does he not? He has a musical gift to play the piano, to be able to sing and play the piano at the same time, and not only to be able to sing and play the piano at the same time, but to lead a group of people in singing and playing the piano at the same time. It truly is a gift. However, if from a young child, Pastor Kevin never sat down at the piano and never began to sing, even though he has this gift, he would not be able to lead the way that he led this morning. If today was the very first day that he ever sat down at a piano and the very first time that he tried to lead a group of people in singing, he probably would not have done very well. Would you agree with that? Yes. Same thing with discernment. What do we do with discernment? Discernment helps us discern what is of God and what is not of God. So we should pray and ask God for discernment. And I say we, as all of us, I pray and ask God for discernment. You need to pray and ask God for discernment for yourself. 
God, give me the spirit, the Holy Spirit, the aspect of the Holy Spirit called discernment so that I can clarify, understand, discern what is of you and what is not of you. And then when I have an understanding of what is of you and what is not of you, if it's not of you, help me to remove it, walk away from it, acknowledge it as untruth in the name of Jesus Christ. Practice discernment. How do I stay away from strange teachings? I ask God, God, is what I'm reading, is what I'm studying, is what I'm being told of you or not of you? Guys, you can get all sorts of strange teachings inside the church, outside the church, inside the college, outside the college, on the internet, on the television, all over. You can get all these different sorts of strange teachings bubbling up to the surface. And what we do with them kind of dictates the direction that we go. Because if if I believe that, then it leads to that, then it leads to that, then it leads to that. And all of a sudden, I'm so far away with these strange teachings. Strange teachings is one of the avenues that evil one uses to... Get inside of the church building, so to speak, inside of our hearts and our lives and our conversations and lead us astray as if that were possible. Stay away. Do not be carried away by all kinds of strange teachings. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. The author continues. It is good for our hearts to be strengthened by grace, not by ceremonial foods which are of no value to those who eat them. We have an altar from which those who minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. Let's dissect that for just a moment. What are these ceremonial foods that's being talked about, and what do we do with that today? Well, let's date back a few thousand years. We understand if you have a tradition of of studying Christianity, you understand that Christianity has its roots and is part of the the Old Testament. Old Testament, New Testament combined make the truth of of what Scripture is. And when you look in the Old Testament, you see some of the things that happened in the Old Testament around sacrifices. There were blood sacrifices that God required in the Old Testament in order to cover, uh, cover up our sins. When Jesus came, he became that blood sacrifice and it was no longer necessary to have blood sacrifices for the forgiveness of sin. The way that that was done in the Old Testament, you originally had the tent of meeting, which was constructed and God gave these dimensions of the tent of meeting to Moses. That then became the tabernacle. And the children of Israel, whenever they traveled, they would take the tabernacle down, they would travel to a new spot, and they would set up the tabernacle. The tabernacle inside of it had two divisions, the holies and the holy of holies. Outside of it was still this this rectangular looking shape with a a fence around it. And inside of that is where the blood sacrifice took place. They would take the animal and they would slit its throat and they would take the blood and then the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and sprinkle it on the altar and then the the forgiveness of sin was taking place. A little bit more to it, but because of time, we don't have time to dig into that. This is what the author is talking about right here. Not by ceremonial foods, which are of no value to those who eat them. For we have an altar from which, from whom the minister at the tabernacle have no right to eat. So that's what was going on Old Testament. What was going on in the culture and the world at that time? At that very time, there was also other blood animal sacrifices that were happening. The pagan religions, the other religions also believed in animal sacrifice. But they did things a little bit different. They would take the animals, they would kill the animals, offer a blood sacrifice, but then they would roast and eat the animal and partake of it. And their belief was that if I take the blood, or if I take the meat, or I take the essence of that animal, and I ingest it, then the spirituality that that represents became a part of who I was. 
And so this is a pagan religion that's going on in Rome at the time that the author's writing this, in the Roman world, which is very prominent at that time, and it dated back for thousands of years. Animal sacrifices was not something new. What was new was that what was different in, in the Jewish world was the way that it was done. It was to cover sins. And then they would take the animals outside of the area where they had sacrificed them, outside of the camp, and they would burn and destroy the animals, the flesh of it there. They didn't partake on it. The only time that they partook of the animal that they sacrificed was at the Passover when they were in Egypt. Outside of that, they no longer did that. So this is what's going on in the world. Now, what does that have to do with us in our world today? doesn't have anything to do with us today because we don't, do, we don't believe in blood sacrifices. We don't believe in animal sacrifices. We don't have to do that because Jesus is with us, right? Wow. Y- yes and no. You know, we still struggle with the essence of gathering spirituality, gathering meaning of life, gathering the essence of who we are from the things that we ingest inside of our body. Look at the health food stores and the prominence. Guys, whenever we are become more focused on health and diet and food, and that becomes a god to us, that becomes an idol. Now, it is very important to eat healthy. It's very important to make wise choices about what goes into our body and to take care of what God's given us. Our bodies are the temple of the Most High God. That's scriptural. But when that becomes superseding, when I go to uh, a diet or I go to a, a food or I go to a substance to get the essence of who I am, to fill the essence of me, to fill the longing, to fill the desires, to find my spiritual meaning, spirituality in life, that's a problem. And so stay away from the strange teachings. Stay away from the things that, you, that, that we were told are going to bring us closer to uh, all-knowing, bring us closer to figuring out who we are, bring, bringing, bringing us closer to our spiritual uh, awakeness and awareness. You see, I think a lot of times we spend more time worshiping at the foot of the tree of the knowledge and good and evil versus worshiping at the foot of our Savior. The tree of life. This cross, although it's wooden planks and it was death for Jesus, is the tree of life for us as Christ followers. Stay away from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And focus on the tree of life. That's the essence of what the author is writing here. He continues in verse 11. The high priest carries the blood of the animals into the most holy place as a sin offering. And that's kind of what we talked about a moment ago. So the high priest would take the blood sacrifices and go inside of the altar. And that became the blood sacrifice that you or I would make every year to cover the forgiveness of our sins because blood was required. But we know that it's no longer required because of Jesus. The author continues. And the bodies are burned outside of the camp. So I talked about that a moment ago. Outside of the tabernacle, inside the tabernacle, inside of the, the grounds is where they would kill the animal. But the animals didn't stay there. They took them not only outside of the tabernacle area, outside of the very camp. So you can imagine the size of several million Jewish people living together in community. One large, what we would call almost a city, city of tents, with a tabernacle somewhere in the center of it. And then it's only the outskirts, and then way outside, they would take these bodies. Why? Because a dead body is unclean. It's unclean. So we don't want to touch it. We don't want to have anything to do with it. That animal shed its life. For my blood sacrifice. 
verse 12. And so Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Now, Jesus suffered inside the city gates of Jerusalem, but outside the city gates is where he lost his life. Inside the city gates, he was broken. He was bruised. He was whipped. He was spit upon. He was cursed. He stood before Pilate. All of these things happened inside of Jerusalem. But you remember the story of what happened after that. Jesus had to bear his cross. He took his cross on his shoulder, on his broken, beaten up, messed up body. And he took the cross all the way outside of the same city gate that he came in a week earlier to celebrate who he was. The triumphal entry. He now went out that gate and dragged that cross up to a hill called Golgotha, outside of the city gate. And so the Jewish people would understand the importance of the city gate. The Jewish people would understand the importance of taking uh, a, a broken dead animal outside of the, uh, of, of the community. And that's what he illustrates here as Jesus. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. The process of Jesus dying is what brings us to holiness. It's not the blood sacrifice of an animal that makes us holy. That didn't make anybody holy. So we have a command by God to be holy. And then all through Scripture, these commands by God, these examples of God, these callings by God to live a holy lifestyle in the body, out of the body, our thoughts, our minds, our, our body actions, everything that we do, we're called to live in holiness. But holiness cannot be achieved on our own. It's a gift that's given to us. When we say yes to Jesus because of the sacrifice that Jesus did, because of the blood that he shed, because of the brokenness of his body, because he died, therefore you and I are given a gift when we say yes to him of the Holy Spirit. And holiness itself comes to dwell within us. What a beautiful gift that is. So often we confuse saying yes to Jesus with life after death. And although they are Important. Life after death is very important. Where I'm going to spend eternity is critically important. Saying yes to Jesus, I'm assured of life after death. I'm assured of being able to live with him forever and ever and ever. But here in the moment, until that time comes, we're given the gift of the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within us, to allow us, help us, encourage us, walk hand in hand with us as we pursue and chase after the holiness of God. It's a choice that we make. It's a choice that we make to walk in that holiness. Death was defeated. Sin was defeated. Glory was given. Holiness attainable. Holiness more than attainable. Holiness became a part of who we are when we say yes to Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit of God comes to dwell within us. He becomes a part of the DNA of who I am. We're commanded to live holiness. We're commanded to be holiness. And Jesus died so that the people could be holy through his blood. And then verse 13, let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace that he bore. What on earth is that talking about? How do I carry and go outside? What tent? What area? What city gate? What, where do I go to do this? What does this actually look like for me? Let us then go to him, Jesus, outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. Again, this is part of the importance of understanding who is being written to here. This is being written to the Messianic community of believers. Jewish people who have said yes to Jesus. Now I want you to put your thinking cap on, put your imagination on for just a moment, and imagine 2,000, 1,900 years ago, 
being born a Jewish boy or girl, being raised to believe everything that's in the Old Testament, to be raised to believe that someday in the future a Messiah is coming. And he's going to set his people free. And all those promises, all that scripture, everything that we've memorized as children and young adults and adults now have, have become an essence of who I am. And now you've been told that the Messiah has come. And his name is Yeshua. It's Jesus. And if you give your heart and your life in him, you become a Messianic Jew. You become a Christ follower. Think about what you're giving up here. Think about what you're being called to do. Think about how that divides your family, how it splits your family right down the middle, how it destroys your community, possibly. Destroys your town, possibly. Let us then go up to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. I am now bearing this disgrace of I am no longer accepted in my family because I am a Messianic Jew. I'm no longer wanted in my town because I'm a Messianic Jew. Think about it from the perspective of Paul for just a moment. Paul was Saul before he came Paul. Saul was known as a Christian killer. Who are the Christians that he was targeting? It wasn't the Gentile Christians who were claiming Christ. Who is he targeting? He's targeting Messianic Jews. Think about that for a minute. We're thinking as we read Paul and the story of Paul that he's so, he's so obvious, he's so open about the lifestyle that he lived and what he did. He's open about that. He's sharing from his mistakes and sharing about how God saved him until he had the encounter with Jesus Christ eyeball to eyeball. He was prominently, vocally encouraging others to do what he was doing, a, a, a person who wanted to wipe out Christianity. He was targeting Messianic Jews and attempting to wipe them off the face of the earth because Messianic Judaism contaminated the purity of Judaism that he understood, that he grew up in, that he was passionate about. Guys, it's not like us today in the city where we live where we can just open up and say, hey, I want to be a Christ follower today. Yeah, I'll be baptized. I'll be dunked in some water. Yeah, I'm a Christian. This was life and death. Now, there are areas in our world today where saying yes to Jesus is a life and death type of decision. The way that it was described here in the book of Hebrews 1900-ish years ago. But for, for us, those who are sitting in this congregation today, it's not much of a sacrifice, quite honestly, in comparison. So we're thinking about that and, and the authors encouraging these Messianic Jews, these Christ followers, to bear the same disgrace that Jesus bore because Jesus bore it on our behalf. Is that asking too much of us to sacrifice just a little on behalf of the one who gave his all for us, who set us free, who gave us the gift of atonement and sacrifice? For here, we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. We're looking for the new Jerusalem. We're looking for the heavenly city to come. We're looking in anticipation for the future. Even though the momentary, even though what we're experiencing right here, right now, may be tough, it may be discouraging at times, it may be hard. 
We look to the future. We look to the promises. We look to the promises that do not fail. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The truths from yesterday, the truths from today are always truths. And they will always be truths. If they weren't, then none of it's true. The essence of the truth of Scripture, same yesterday, same today, same forever. These promises that were given 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago, are the same promises that are true today. All we have to do is grab hold of them, embrace them, walk with them, live them out in the way that we live our lives. We're called to pursue holiness, to chase after holiness, the way we pursue and chase after Christ. We're called to do that. We're encouraged to do that. We want to do that. I hope you want to do that. Pursue more of God and the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. Verse 15. Here's the more practical. Here's the more how do I do this type of instructions. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise. You understand that this is very important because sacrifices are no longer necessary. Again, think about who he's writing, who the author is writing to. Writing to these Messianic Jews, all they've known is every year I need to have a blood sacrifice. Jesus has paid that blood sacrifice on the cross. He was dead. He was buried. He came back to life. He ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he mediates between God and mankind in this very moment. The blood sacrifice was made. It no longer has to be made. No longer are sacrifices of that nature having to be made. No longer. Yet there is a sacrifice that is pleasing to God in the here and now. And that's a sacrifice of praise. Has praise ever been a sacrifice for anyone that's here? No, only answer that inside of your heart. Is praising God at times a sacrifice? And what does that look like? And how do I live that out? Let your lifestyle, if you need to sacrifice, when we need to sacrifice, let it be a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of lips that confess his name. So we think because we sing the name of Jesus on a Sunday morning in a service, or we speak the name of Jesus because it's the answer to the correct question that the Bible study teacher answers, then we've lived out this verse. That's not a sacrifice of praise. It's sacrifice of praise, honoring and, and blessing the name of Jesus, speaking the name of Jesus, is when it hurts, when it's painful, when it's not easy to do. When life is in the dumps, I offer a sacrifice of praise. Not when it's on the mountaintop. When the mountaintop is not a sacrifice. It's praise, which we should do when we're on the mountaintop. Let us not negate praising God on the mountaintop, praising God on the side of the mountain, and praising God when we're in the valley. Our lifestyle, as our lives go up and down, our praise should not go up and down. Our praise should stay consistent. But at times, that very praise is a sacrifice. Because it hurts. Father, I don't like this situation. I don't understand this situation. I don't want this situation. But your, your word does not come back void. And you have a purpose and a plan for my life to prosper me and not to harm me and to give me a hope in a future. And your love for me is from everlasting to everlasting. And you promise you will never leave me and never forsake me. And even though it feels like you have left me and forsaken me in this moment, I believe the truth of Scripture and it speaks truth. And it says you will never leave me and you will never forsake me. And that is the truth 
That is the sacrifice of my praise right here in this moment. That even though my emotions and my feelings tell me God's not real, God's dead, God doesn't exist, God doesn't love, fill in the blank, I will speak the truth because it's truth. Offering a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that confess his name and do not forget to do good and share with others for such sacrifice is uh, God is pleased. God looks at doing good and sharing with others when it's a sacrifice as pleasing to him. Now, should we help others when it's not a sacrifice? Absolutely. Should we do good even when it's not a sacrifice? Absolutely. Should we stop doing good and stop taking care of others and stop helping because it costs us a little bit? No, we shouldn't. That becomes the sacrifice of praise. That becomes the praise that is pre, the, the sacrifice that is pleasing to God. When even when I'm hurting, I still choose to help if I can help. I still choose to bless if I can bless. I still choose to lift up, to encourage, to equip, even though it's a hard day. Those are the sacrifices that God finds pleasing. In verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give an account. Obey them so that their work will be a joy, not a burden. For that would be of no advantage to you. Two things I want to make mention of here. We talked about leadership a few weeks ago when we looked at some other scripture in Hebrews that talked about leadership. Two things I want to mention right here. Number one, this does not give leadership, whether they're on a stage or a Bible study or any type of spirituality. If you're in a leadership position from a spiritual perspective, this does not give you access, free reign to say, do whatever you feel like doing. It doesn't. And this is a verse like other verses where it has been taken out of context and it says, well, you have to do what I say because I'm the leader. You have to do what I say because I'm the boss. You have to do what I say because the Bible says that's not what it says. You have to read the entire context of what it's saying. This is an accountability to the leadership as well. This is an accountability because it talks about the responsibility, how the leaders they're on a stage or a Bible study or whatever that looks like, they're held to a higher standard. Who wants to sign up for a higher standard of accountability to God? <laughs> well, accountability is accountability in the eyes of God. Well, scripturally, if you're a teacher, you're held at a higher level of accountability to God based on what you teach. Don't go into that lightly. That's scary. I'm going to tell you from somebody who's right now standing on a stage... That's a scary thing. That's. <laughs> don't sign up for that on a whim or on a dare. Do that because God's calling you. So it's, a, it's, it's not a license to say, do, lead any way that you want to. But on the flip side, we are all accountable. We're all accountable to God, but we're also accountable to those who are in spiritual position of authority above us. So we are called, each of us, to make wise choices. I tell this to the teenagers on a pretty regular basis. There's always somebody watching. There's always somebody younger that's looking up, that's observing. There's always somebody... 
that you have some type of leadership position over. This truly is a verse for all of us. Because all of us in this room, in, the mo- in, this, in this room, in the moment, have accountability to people in positions above us. But we also have accountability the way that we live our lives to people that are from that perspective below. I'm not talking against equality here. I'm talking about from a leadership position. Holiness. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Here's how I want to end this series. If you'll have your Bibles turn back about 15, 20 pages to the left, we're going to go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and this is how I want to end this series, series is with just a few more verses of life application. Because if it's not applicable to my life, it's just a good lesson or a mediocre lesson, and it goes in one ear and out the other. How do I live this out? I want to give you a last few verses, some verses that Paul wrote to the church of Thessalonica Thessalonica, about living out a Christ-like, holy lifestyle. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-24. He says to be joyful always. Have a lifestyle of being joyful. That's difficult, isn't it? It's fine to be joyful when everything's going well, but we talked about that roller coaster, that hill and valley of life just a moment ago. How do I be joyful when I'm in the dumps? How do I be joyful when when life's difficult? I have to speak and proclaim truth over my heart and my life. I have to acknowledge what it is. I have to speak that truth in love to my very self, to look at myself in that spiritual mirror and speak truth. Be joyful always. Pray continually. Oh, I love that verse. That's one of my favorite verses in the, in the Bible, this idea of praying without ceasing. Uh, a week or two ago, I got a text from a teenager who asked an incredible question. said, how do I pray without ceasing? I heard you talk about it all the time. How does that actually live out? How do we do that? Because I can't do that physically. I cannot physically get on my hands and knees and cross my arms and, and, and do my fingers and, and pray 24-7. I got to sleep. I got to study. I got to work. I got to eat. I got to do all these things. How do I live this lifestyle of praying without ceasing, of praying continually, of praying constantly? What does that look like? And the essence of it's what's going on in your heart. What's going on in your spirit? What's going on in your soul? It's that constant communion with God. It's where I'm, I'm always, over and over again, asking God to give me eyes to see the way that he sees, to give him ears to hear the way that he hears, to give me a heart just like Jesus, where my passion becomes, God, whatever you're seeing, I want to see it. Whatever you're hearing, I want to be able to hear it that way. And whatever you're moving at. I want to be a part of where you're moving and I want you to use me to help be part of that movement. To pray continually, to be passionately pursuing Christ, to live this lifestyle of God. I want more of you, more of a relationship, more of an indwelling of who you are. Praying constantly. Verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is another one of those that's really hard to swallow. 
Because we want to read it and say, give thanks when everything's going well. Or give thanks before I say, uh, as I say my blessing before I eat my food. Or give thanks when something nice has happened. Or give thanks before I go to bed at night. Or give thanks when somebody does something nice for me. And that's how we want that sentence to flesh out. And that's the way we want that sentence to read. But that's not what that sentence says. It says, give thanks when? When? Give thanks in all circumstances. How then do I develop a lifestyle of giving thanks when I'm in the valley? I don't think he's saying give thanks because you're in the valley. That's not quite the same thing. God, I'm thankful that I'm suffering right now. Yay! I'm thankful. I'm thankful I, I lost my job. Yay! I'm thankful I've got death all over my family. Yay! Now, that's not what he's saying there. But those are the realities of life that, depending on what season we're in, that we're, we all go through. It's like, it, it's more of the, God, I'm thankful that even those circumstances stink and it's hard and it hurts that you're faithful. And God, I'm saying that, not feeling it. So I'm asking you to help me feel that. I'm asking for more. I'm asking for some healing, physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. I, I, I need something here, God. But I believe the truth and I am founded and staying put right here in the middle of it. Why? Because this is God's will. This is God's will. Anytime in Scripture where you see this is the will of God, we need to write that down, underline it, circle it, highlight it, and say, how do I live that out? Because this is God's will. Where it says God's will means I want you to do it. Hmm. Do not put the spirits, do not put out the spirits' fire, or do not quench the spirit. You know, some people believe that we as mere mortals, as mere humans, do not have the ability of quenching the Spirit of God, of putting out the fire, the move of God. But to believe that means that you disagree with the very words that Paul says here. You, as an individual, I as an individual, have the power to quench the move of God, to quench the Spirit, to put it out. Now, that may only be for my heart and my life, but I think that affects my family as well. And if it affects my family, then that affect those who I'm in contact with and the way that I live my life, we have the ability to stop a move of God. Let that not be on our list of accusations against God or from, from God to us. When he holds us accountable, let him not say, you quenched what I wanted to do. Oh my goodness. How our heart would actually break, not because of what we did, but because we missed a move of God. Let's not miss a move of God. Let us not quench the spirit. We may not understand it, but not let's, let us not automatically reject it, but let us chase after it. Use discernment to see what's of God and what's not of God. Practical steps. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. That's another one of these things that oftentimes we struggle with because depending on how you were raised and what type of church setting you grew up in, some people believe that prophecy only means foretelling the future. And although that is a small part of the prophetic, that's not a whole of the prophetic. One of the examples I use with the teenagers is when you go to someone 
Lay hands on them, just whisper in their ear, whatever you want to do, and you pray over them. When you pray a verse of Scripture, if you've ever prayed a verse of Scripture over someone, you prophesied over them. You prophetically spoke the truth of life over them. Do not treat prophecies with contempt. Test everything, hold on to the good, and avoid every kind of evil. And that's the essence of testing the Spirit. See what's of God and not of God. That's part of our responsibility. Test, seek, discern, figure out. God, if this is of you, I want more of it. If it's not of you, help me to say no to it. And this is how Paul ends, and this is how I want to end this series. With verse 23 and verse 24. May God himself, the God of peace. Now the word here is shalom. We talked about that a few weeks ago, about the difference between shalom and peace. It's not the absence of escalation, the absence of war, the absence of fighting. It's shalom, the peace that passes understanding, the peace of mind. That's the essence of who God is. May God himself, the God of shalom, make you completely holy. May your whole spirit Soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. The one who calls you and calls me is faithful and he will do everything that he has promised. He's the same yesterday. He's the same today. And he will be the same forever and ever and ever. We're going to pray and just ask God to to move in our hearts and our lives. I'll be up here. Some of our prayer team will be up here. If you want to make this your church home, you want to come talk to somebody about that, we'd love to talk to you about that. If, If you've never said yes to Jesus, you've never received that peace that passes understanding, don't let... Don't let it go another day. Don't let it go five more minutes. Get it done now. Give Jesus your all. He's worth it. He's worth it. He's worth it all. We need more of Him in our hearts and our lives. We need more of Him in our country, in our community. We need more of Him in our church. We need more of Him, period. And the only thing, the only thing that's in the way of more of Jesus is the fact that we've got more of us. Jesus wants to honor that prayer. Give me more, give me more, give me more. And he'll say, yeah, I'm going to give it to you. What are you going to give rid of? What's the junk you want to get rid of so that I can fill that very space? He wants to fill us completely where we are the essence of him dwelling within us. Just give him to him. Just a little bit more. A little bit more. A little bit more.